This week's edition of the Westworld Podcast is sponsored by True Car. If you're looking for a car, you're probably familiar with terms like MSRP. You might even know what it stands for, but what does it actually mean? The same goes for invoice, list price, and dealer price. It's enough to confuse anybody. All you're really looking for is a price that actually means something. That's why there's True Price from True Car. Now you'll know exactly what you'll pay for the car that you want, including the fees and the accessories, before you even get to the dealership. And a True Car dealer will show you what the true price is on a car like the one that you want all from the comfort of your home. And how do you know if your true price is a great price? Because True Car shows you what other people paid for the same car that you want. And your certified dealer knows this. So they set their true price competitively so they can win your business. So when you're ready to buy a new or used car, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features are not available in all states. World Season 2, Episode 6, Phase Space is over, but we are just getting started here on the Welcome to Westworld podcast. Hello, everybody. Uh, not a necessarily familiar voice in your ears right now for those of you that are frequent listeners to the Welcome to Westworld podcast. My name is Mike Bloom. I have uh, replaced Josh Wiggler. I am the uh, one hanging up laundry while Josh Wiggler is tar- talking to Joe Garfine, and Josh turns around and sees that, oh, there's someone new here. Uh, so I am replacing Josh while he is uh, out on a but I'm so thrilled to be here, especially thrilled to be here with the true constant in this equation when it comes to Westworld, Joe Garfine. Joe, how are you doing? Hello, Mike. It is nice to hear your voice on this end. I've listened to other podcasts with you. We have the same circles of podcast friends that we uh, run and record, and so it's, it's a real treat. You're an excellent host substitute out of cold storage for Josh Wiggler, and uh, it's nice that he let you borrow his brain ball for this episode. Absolutely. And that brain ball, I tell you, is jet black, just like Bernard. So I can only imagine what sort of content is is in there, but we shall see. Uh, For those of you that might be checking this out for the first time, because you want to... You found out that the back half of season two of Westworld is very bananas, as we're about to talk about over the course of this podcast. This is the Welcome to Westworld podcast. It's a collaboration between The Hollywood Reporter and Post Show Recaps, where each and every week, Joss and Joe are going to break down all the insanity that happens over the course of season two of Westworld, with many theories abound. Uh, for a bit of a background on me, as I said before, my name is Mike Bloom. I am an entertainment reporter and podcaster. I've worked on a variety of networks including uh, Rob has a podcast, The Survivor Historians. And I also do some Westworld podcasting, sort of parallel to a uh, parallel timeline, if you will, to what Josh and Joe do uh, on a network uh, with Jay and Jack, who Joe spoke about the uh, friends of c- circles of friends that we run in sort of chasing each other, much like greyhounds chase their tails. Uh, we are all lost fans. Add me onto that pile as we uh, drink the night away due to the lost drinking game, which I'm sure will come about a few times. But I'm very happy to be uh, covering, I think, as you said last week, Joe, sort of one of the spiritual successors when it comes to larger themes and mysteries at play to Lost. And man, speaking of mysteries, in true Westworld fashion, episode six, I feel like, does the great thing that Westworld does sometimes where they close a bunch of doors on mysteries, but that opens up at least three times as many doors as to the possibilities that exist. I mean, look at all the different uh, brain balls in the server room, because that basically is us every week. Just just pick a random brain ball and insert it into your brain. and You could possibly be a host with a new theory. It is there are myriad theories. This is what I love about the show. And I am not when it gets frustrated by questions being posed without answers, either ever or immediately given. Uh, I know that was a drink. I know that it was a thing with people with lost. Um, but 
this show has superseded is the wrong word. Um, if gone far beyond in great lengths, I think, in terms of uh, Easter eggs and uh, positing theories and hiding theories for us to unravel. Um, I just, this episode made me very happy on a, uh, a snobby intellectual level. <laughs> it's one of those things where you're like, yeah, I got that. And I feel good for getting that. It's like solving the Sunday New York Times crossword. To be fair, I, I took notes the first night and then I couldn't sleep and I had to get up and take a whole new page of notes because I had new ideas because it presents there's so much content. You know, I've heard a few people complain is the wrong word, but um, note that it is dense and it is. It's an intense, dense hour of television and it's really not for light viewing while you're doing your laundry. Uh, and that is not for everyone, but it is certainly for us. And make sure when you're doing your laundry to, of course, separate the white shirts from the black shirts. And depending nice. on which shirt you take, that will determine how you uh, move forward with that. Uh, but yeah, let's get into this because there's a lot. Yes. I I, uh, I picked a fun week. Uh, you know, the, the hands that I'm assuming are sort of playing the metaphoric piano of this podcast. I picked an interesting tune for myself to cameo on because, you know, the past couple of episodes, I feel like we have sort of parsed out our character storylines. You know, episode four really focused on the man in black's journey in both past and present. And then also we had, you know, uh, a bit of stuff with Bernard and Elsie going on. Episode five last week focused a lot on Maeve's journey through Shogun world and simultaneously Dolores and her growing mistrust in Teddy. Now in this episode, we have smashed them together like a train hurtling towards the Mesa and things have blown up in fantastic proportion. I know you sort of uh, glanced upon those thoughts earlier on, but what did you think about this? I mean, for lack of a better term, insane episode overall. I was pleasantly surprised that they were able to service every character, essentially. Uh, like, you, like you mentioned, they have been uh, parsing out certain storylines and episodes. And, you know, I, of course, a lot of us are waiting for more meetings between Maeve and Dolores and, I think we'll jump right into it, but to start the episode with what we thought we knew, with Dolores mm -hmm. and Arnold, Dolores and Bern Arnold, and I think, I don't know if you can speak to this, because I'm not a tech person, but the aspect ratio yes. seems, seems to be a key when determining what and when we're looking at. Maybe you can elaborate on that as we go. Yes, there are many aspects to look to in this scene, quite literally. So yes, yeah, so we open this up, and I will mention before we get to the first scene, uh, this was probably the most artistic previously on that, that at least I remember. I don't know if you remember any other ones, Joe, but I don't I don't think there was anything that was being said or very little words. And it was just this like this, this, you know, uh, Edo style music bringing in the styles of Shogun world with just these like in rhythm shots of all these disparate storylines, which is good because we're going to see them again sort of smash together, building this cacophony of sound this episode. But I thought it was beautifully done in a very nice segue into that first scene. It was beautiful. It also reminded me of those somewhat infuriating Mad Men promos where they would yes. show you absolutely nothing but got you excited for the next episode. Yes, Matthew Weiner's giant middle finger to, <laughs> to the network. Uh, but I'm glad that Westworld was able to utilize it in at least a very beautifully artistic value. So let's move into our own sort of boardroom here as to the point that you mentioned before we get a very familiar scene especially in comparison to the way we opened the premiere of season two it's a familiar setting it's in the the you know this little church basement hideout where they were you know in the beginnings of the startup that was westworld this is where they were sort of helping test dolores and we have actually very similar i mean pretty much word for word the way that we think arnold and dolores start this conversation starts pretty much in the middle of the dialogue that we uh, saw in the very first episode, 
And things get, of course, in true Westworld fashion, a little bit twisted when Bernard starts talking about, you know, I have to make a choice between an unknown and an end. And he says, if you outgrow this place, outgrow us, what will become of you? And Dolores, uh, it almost seemed like at first like a blooper that they left on the, you know, they left on the show in the gag reel. But Dolores cuts him off and says, no, he didn't say that. And that's when we find out that Dolores is the one that's administering the test the entire time. And it's the point you made about the aspect ratios before we get into the meat of the scene itself. Uh, we saw this a little bit in the first episode, but I don't think a lot of us picked it up. I know I got to see it at the Tribeca Film Festival, so I think Ooh. aspect ratios was probably the least, uh, <laughs> the furthest thing from my mind at that point. But the, both this scene, the scene, the first episode from the scene from the premiere, and when Bernard goes into the cradle are all done in a wide screen aspect ratio. So those are the the black bars on the top and bottom of the screen. If you were fruitlessly trying to go through your remote, trying to change the aspect ratio on your television, only to find that it changed minutes later. That is why I want to hear all your thoughts on what this could possibly mean. Was it a purely a stylistic choice? Is it a thematic choice? What are you thinking? I think it's a help for the fans. I think it's it's a nod and an obvious wink. And like, listen, we're going widescreen. We need you to open your mind and expand your mind and open it up because this is not the now. What we're showing you is not right now. And it's like flashback, flash forward, flash sideways, whatever you want to call it. I think it's actually a gift. Um, at least that's the way I see it. Mm-hmm. Do we interpret it then as since we saw, again, this first scene in the cradle that we'll talk about soon with Bernard actually going in there is also in this widescreen format. Are we assuming then that this first scene and assumingly also the season two premiere first scene are taking place within the cradle? And if so... We're definitely going to ask, is this Arnold? Is this Bernard? But on the other hand, is this Dolores? Or do you think this is someone speaking through her? Okay, first crazy theory of the night. Um, I was thinking that perhaps this is uh, flash forward. And so, you know, uh, the whole season, Dolores has been referring to um, glory and the weapon. And we know that there's a door and maybe, you know, the weapon is the server room where all of the host, you know, data is stored. And maybe she does wind up getting in there. And, and, and I don't know if it's, if Maeve has anything to do with this or not. And I just see a conflict happening, but I just, I feel like what if we're looking at is something that we haven't seen yet after she's taken control of the entire park and all the hosts. Mm-hmm. So now that, yeah, cause we've talked about this weapon and this idea of like a big MacGuffin yeah. in Westworld season two, this big location, call it glory, call it whatever you want, that it seems like William and Dolores and their separate paths were sort of, were heading towards. It seems like Dolores has now been a bit sidetracked with uh, rescuing dad Bernathy, but it seemed like they were sort of going for this, you know, big thing in this town that William had built. And I wonder if it does connect to the cradle because this really does seem like you know, the uh, the final point for Westworld. This is where all of the host backups are, essentially. And they sort of play out in their own little world. I compared it to, uh, personally, to like San Junipero yeah. from, uh, from, you know, the third season of Black Mirror fantastic episode. But it the seems like... The best episode. <laughs> the best episode, definitely. But it seems like it's, it's this own little separate virtual world where despite everything that's going on outside, this is where everything just sort of runs without rails, but everyone is sort of fulfilling their own separate loops, including some maybe people that don't belong there, but we can certainly talk about that. So you think that this is after Dolores conquers all, takes control of the cradle, and this is her speaking to, call it Bernard, call it Arnold, within the system? 
I do, and I believe that she needs him as an ally, and she's she's surprised by him glitching or not being who she thought he was. Um, mm. But to go back a second, you know, the word cradle. This season, to me, if you don't mind my tangent, um, is about family, and specifically it's about daughters, Dolores and Dad Bernathy, Maeve and her daughter, William and his daughter. A cradle is where you put someone after birth and where you raise them. It's also where you put, you know, there are people that might believe in a rebirth. And so I was thinking about Cradle and Dolores and Bernardold and the rebirth of it all, potentially in the womb that is the cradle. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely thought about that as well. I know how big you are about family. Only next to the cast of the Fast and the Furious franchise are you that big on family. But it reminds <laughs> it reminds me of this pivotal image though in the opening sequence where you know one of the major changes from season one to two is instead of just this lone host being created, it's a mother with a child. Exactly. And, and the camera, especially focusing in on that child, really makes me think about the cradle. And it also makes me think back, like this history nerd to me makes me think of like Mesopotamia the cradle of civilization this like go. gulf where people you know is, uh basically modern civilization as we know it it was born so i think it was an interesting idea i also love that you know i listened to you and josh talk about this only shortly before this episode premiered and you said like i didn't, couldn't tell if they were talking about the cradle or the crater it turns <laughs> out it was the cradle but also connecting back to that first scene from episode five it looks like they were correct me if i'm wrong they were saying strand and the gang were saying that the cradle had been cut off or deleted or something they they were not did not have access to it whatsoever by the time strands men get there right Am I correct in that that is correct so then you have to go okay what timeline is it then when elsie is down there with bernard mm-hmm. yeah so it's it's i mean we get a little bit more of a timeline i feel like here we're going to talk a little bit about you know we're going to try to separate out the storylines here just uh you know to bring things up because there's a very big beginning and there's a very big end <laughs> yes. to this episode and we'll try to also you know separate out the separate components of this delicious sandwich that was phase space but going back to the uh, you know going back to that uh, charlotte does say early on in the episode that you know it's been a week and you know they're still finding ways to shoot up the place so i guess again it's a very lugubrious way to fill out this timeline but it seems like if charlotte is to be correct about a week or so has passed from the shooting of dr ford to now all this stuff has happened it's i believe when they captured the footage of dolores shooting up the ghost yeah. nation people that was what 11 days two after weeks. the attack two weeks yeah, yeah 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 so it looks like we still have another way to go which makes sense because we have another basically half a season <laughs> before us but did you have any thoughts about all of this having only taken place over the course of a week i guarantee we did have you know we spent some time in episode four back with james delos you know in the little lazarus pit hideout but to know that everything sort of played out here over the course of the first week, it does seem like really setting up for cataclysmic events to occur over the course of the second week, no? It certainly does. And it's interesting, when William in old man and Harris form went to see Delos, we don't know when that was, uh, you mm-hmm. know, at what point. But the fact that two to three episodes apart, you have William talking to Delos about fidelity and you have Dolores talking to Arnold about fidelity. The fact that those two characters are using the same language makes my brain explode in the best possible way. What if this is a long con? I mean, Hmm. I'm just saying, what if Dolores and William have been working together the entire time? Ah, William's 11. I love it. That like the camera pans back. He made out with the DNA the entire time. But yeah, that was the one word I picked out as well. And I mean, in a show that's about, especially in this scene, it's like applying scrutiny to words, right? Dolores says that, oh, you know, 
Arnold didn't say that he questioned whether or not he should have made the choice. It's whether or not he had the agency to, which also feels like a running theme throughout this. I feel like that quote has a lot of connection to Maeve's running quote throughout this episode of, you know, uh, it should ha- it should be his choice for his fate, even if it is death. But you make a very good point in that that fidelity word just reverberates considering we only heard it not only two episodes before, but two episodes before in a very similar testing situation. I don't know if, if it's maybe Ford or someone else speaking through Dolores. I don't know if it's just a buzzword that's popular on Westworld, but I think it's a it's an interesting like word to pick out of the cloud. And I will, and from from here on out, anytime it's mentioned, our spidey senses will you know uh, go up because I just think it's it's nothing is coincidental, which I love about Westworld. But I also love that fate versus free will is a longstanding theme. Then it's threading a needle that hopefully you know we will get some answers to by the end of the season. And I want to just, you know, finish off briefly because I know this was a, a big scene to start off the episode. But let's talk about the ramifications as well of this reveal that the person who was in this room with Dolores might not necessarily be Arnold. And in fact, I don't know if we can call him Bernard because I will get into a bit of the sneak peek here, folks, over the next few minutes. So feel free to tune out, skip ahead if you don't want to hear about that. But this is what I wrote about uh, in the sneak peek at the sneak peek on THR.com slash Westworld. But I don't know if you noticed this, Joe, but there was a very interesting shot thrown in on the next time on of a room full of Bernards under sheets with various injuries onto them. I mean, this this feels like, you know, the, the Council of Ricks and all his Mortys uh, <laughs> in Rick and Morty. But did you make anything of that on top of the fact that, like, this person that we're seeing might not necessarily be the Arnold that we assumed in the first place? I assumed there'd be a bunch of Bernardos in cold storage. I didn't think we'd see them. Uh, obviously, he's going to see them. And then it brings into question the Bernard that washed up in shore in episode one. Who is that? And now that we know that brain balls can be transferred, I think the question is, we know at this point Bernard is a skin suit. We just don't know whose brain ball is in him at any given time. Yeah, exactly. So it really opens up between, you know, the brain ball aspect. And now on top of this, that there are a bunch of Bernard, you know, bodies lying around, essentially. I don't know what season three of Westworld is going to look like, but it <laughs> might involve like Agent Smith-esque Arnold battles uh, you know across. <laughs> the more Jeffrey writes, the better. We are so blessed to have him in the universe acting on this show. It is incredible. Yeah, I would love to see just a room of Jeffrey Wrights just talking to each other. I think that would be that would be incredible, especially if he has to embody all these different characters at once. But I think it's an interesting box to open uh, that I'm sure we're going to be talking about later on. And actually, let's stay on the Bernard note, because I feel like the other big thing we have to talk about, I'd say maybe the top story coming out of this episode. Ford is back, Joe. I didn't think it would happen. I know you and Josh didn't think it would necessarily happen. We saw what, like CGI, you know, nanny yeah. from Muppet Babies esque halfway <laughs> shot down of his legs in the second episode, but he is back in the flesh. I don't know if I could say flesh, but a, a metaphysical version of him is back in the Mariposa. How did you feel with this big reveal at the very end of the episode? I wasn't that surprised. I was actually more surprised by the opening scene, to be honest. Uh, And I loved that Ford was there. I was kind of hoping slash expecting. He's the voice inside the Matrix. You know, uh, Elsie made a point Mm -hmm. to tell us and to tell Bernard that all the hosts are here when she was talking about the cradle. Um, And it seems like we have not seen Ford go away entirely because he's spoken this season via El Lazo, via Lawrence's daughter, and via young Ford. 
And so I, I'm, those are, you know, large assumptions. I'm not sure they've been confirmed, but I think a lot of people would be on board with that. So he's never really gone away, even if Tony Hopkins hasn't physically appeared much. Um, so I guess it was, I was sort of hoping slash excited for that scene. The nice touch of having the dog, his host dog from his fake family home, uh, his childhood home. That was a nice touch. But I also think that was an interesting trigger for Bernard. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So the re- reappearance of Jock, uh, which is the greyhound that he spoke about that, as you said, lived with when he built his sort of pseudo family and had them live on the outskirts of Westworld and they were sort of under the radar. Jock was there. But I also believe that from what I remember in season one, the younger version of Ford killed Jock uh, because a voice in his head told him to. So it's interesting, again, connecting back to this idea of the cradle. Hopefully Jock stays alive because I love them doggies. But yeah, I mean, this was incredible. I do agree with your point that it's one of those things where once it actually comes about, you you can look back and say, okay, that makes sense, which I feel like to me is one of the signs of, you know, the best twists that exist within modern pop culture, where to your point, we've seen Ford as sort of the ghost in the machine gone, but certainly not forgotten through these various people, you know, telling William about the game, arguably according to William, maybe one person who might not be a host, but he thinks is a host because he thinks that Ford sent her. Uh, but he, his presence has always sort of, been there to the point of where you question, you know, are these hosts, even though they think they're sort of self-actualized and working through their own volition, are they really? But we're getting official confirmation here. First, I think we can pretty much confirm that, you know, Bernard was questioning, who is this other brain ball that Ford told me to make? I think we can pretty much confirm that this was Ford's, right? That he yes. that he told Bernard to put the ball into this cradle machine and this is where four lives and that's why he's sort of systematically blocking out any hacking attempts because he is in a manner of speaking like the the uh sort of like living breathing firewall in the cradle he's the man behind the curtain he is the wizard of oz now um it, and he was a different color brain ball if you notice for bernard yes. and for Ford, which I think is actually helpful for us as viewers. <laughs> well, yeah, um, I think it's an interesting point, too, because I feel like the brain balls that we've seen previously are either white for the hosts or red for like the human host hybrid. And I feel like red and white are also like the big colors of Westworld. I know you're all about the music, Joe, but I feel like there's a lot of color theory that can be talked yes. about as well. But Bernard, to your point, at least from what we saw, almost had like an obsidian color to it like a very shiny black now again black and white sort of has its references as well but did you make of anything specifically about that color choice to make bernard's brain ball black well i was thinking about the whole white hat black hat situation you know maybe the westworld produces a certain amount of each color and just arbitrarily gives them to different hosts Mm -hmm. um you know it's it's hard to know i'm not sure i'll ever know i did watch the behind the scenes hbo interview with jonah nolan they refer to them as pearls but by the way i'm gonna stick with brain ball because it sounds better rainbow sounds like a 90s brand cereal so my nostalgia loving heart like wants me to like <laughs> dig into a big old bowl of brain balls uh yeah i think it's the pearl and then the uh like the that bulb around it is referred to as the chestnut right which i believe was actually an episode title in uh, season one yes yeah i mean I, it's it's basically like i feel like it's a hard drive and it's just you know it's the external shell yeah so talk to me a little bit about and we'll get into you know the way bernard gets into the cradle in a little bit but i want to keep on this forward track because talk to me about what you think the ramifications of having now a semi-sentient forward in the machine D- does that change anything from westworld in terms of stakes again on the next time on we do see ford still there, still vocalizing a little bit. But as you said, we've sort of seen his presence throughout. Do we think that this is going to be a game changer for the season? 
I think that it changes everything for certain people who are, some people weren't even aware of him at all. Um, I think it changes everything for Elsie, uh, Dolores, Maeve. I don't think it affects people like Teddy or um, Hector or people like that. What I think is going to be interesting is what his role is regarding both Dolores and William. And if Maeve is the only one who's achieved true freedom, uh, if he affects that or alters that in any way, you don't see it. I'm not sure. I cannot remember. Maybe correct me if I'm wrong. We've seen much interaction ever between Maeve and Ford. Mm, no, it was, you know, a couple of times, I believe that we've seen the two of them interact. Uh, you know, I think when we see semi-sentient Maeve last season, she may have talked to him on a couple of occasions, but Ford, I don't think, I mean, he did not see when he was alive her true transformation. He had other things on his mind, a bullet for one. Uh, but I think <laughs> that, that maybe since again, he sort of has been in the ghost of the machine, maybe he's observing more than we think. And so maybe he truly has become this like all knowing being who knows everything that's going on at once, much like we sort of assumed of him in season one of how does he, you know, he probably knows everything that's going on at once. Now he most literally does because he is hardwired into it. Yeah, I mean, if he does, even though Dolores has control over seemingly everyone except for Ghost Nation, which I have another theory about that, I feel like you're right. He must be able to have insight into what she's doing, but he doesn't seem to be stopping it. Mm. Do you think that Bernard, because, you know, Bernard went in there to essentially see what was going on, but obviously now it's sort of a conflict of interest because this is someone who he has such a torrid relationship with, to say the least. Do you think Bernard is going to be able to convince Ford to acquiesce to let anything down? Or do you think now things just become infinitely more complicated and this ultimate goal to, you know, get the host back uh, subdued? Choice B. I think Bernardo's kind of screwed. <laughs> I just think that I'm not sure who else, who anyone else has power besides the Matrix himself. Um, you know, besides Grandpa Ford, I just don't see it. And obviously, you know, we won't talk too much about the next week on, but I think um, it's going to be even more challenging for our friend Bernard. Um, and you mentioned it before, so I have to do my weekly music uh, update, which is that, you know, I've said from the beginning of Westworld that music in the saloon and in other places has been used as a trigger or code for hosts programmed by Robert Ford himself. I feel like it sends out particular signals or code. Um, and I think it happened both in the saloon and in the Delos record player in his little hatch when mm. he was going crazy. And I, 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 I think that music, they use it so much and they go out of the way to show the instruments to have Ford himself play on the piano. I, at least personally, I did like a high five for myself. I thought, okay, all right, this gives me and my own brain ball some kind of confirmation that it's important. Yeah, I agree. I totally high five myself as well, because one of my running theories on the Jane Jack podcast I do about Westworld is I said before the season, you know what? I think Ford's still here. I'm just going to throw out something random. I think Ford's in the piano. And I'm going to say <laughs> I was not technically wrong here. Uh, but I, I think that to your point, the not only the use of music, but I feel like the meaning of those playing the music. The significance of that is very key here because in, I believe it was last episode when they, when they roll back into a very different type of sweet water, the player piano finally stops. It gets too yeah. clogged with blood uh, that it slows down the gears and the piano, the, autom the automated music finally stops. But we still get piano music in this episode. It's being played though by quote unquote people. Dolores in right. the very beginning and Ford at the very end. So it's, it's so key as well that it's not only the, the fact the music is played, but who is actually playing it? Who is now taking it over and saying, this is my song to play? 
Yeah, I, I'm not sure we'll ever know or get confirmation, but it's fun to at least every week have some kind of theory about it. But it has to be purposeful, right? Everything, everything is by design. I keep thinking about Hannibal. This is my design. I just, <laughs> and of course, I think about um, Hannibal Lecter, and that's another rabbit hole. Anyway, um, I, I don't know that we'll ever get confirmation, but you know, the fact that no one's yelling at us online about it means that other people have thought about it as well. All right, well, let's get into a bit more into what Elsie and Bernard, how they get necessarily into the cradle. So last time we saw them, they <laughs> avoided a sad savage attack by you know uh, a, a james delos on his last legs they're walking along the train tracks to get back into the mesa which we will see used in a very different regard later on <laughs> in the episode but i thought it was so interesting we talked about the black and white ha- white hats of it all did you have any uh any thoughts about the fact that they walk through the welcome center it has been completely desiccated much like hq but our black and white hats they're strewn about the floor no regard for them whatsoever because I think at this point there are there are not two sides, one white, one is dark. And I feel like it is every everyone man for himself, every host for himself. And I think that's just a visual to show us like, oh shh probably goes, Oh shit, this is really it goes from the beginning of the experience through the end. It is widespread, it's hit Westworld, it's hit uh, the Raj, it is hit Samurai World. I think it's just uh I don't think that meant more than it did, but I certainly enjoyed the visual of it. Yeah, and I think that it also speaks to this idea of morality, right? Which again ties into this larger idea that we experience a lot with Logan and Williams narratives of, you know, you can be whoever you want to be. Oh no, it's who you really are, it's a mirror. You guys talk a lot about reflections. Uh, and I feel like it's this idea of no matter what you pick, you're going to end up, you know, it doesn't matter what hat you wear, what beats through your blood is essentially all that matters. Uh, and so I think that's it, it's also a nice symbol to your point of, you know, you could play the good guy or the bad guy all you want. There's, there's still the same bullets firing out of the same guns. Well, as we saw with Dolores, you know, upping everything possible on Teddy, you know, with the click of a button, you can go from white hat to black hat. Yeah, absolutely. So we have, speaking of uh, the click of a button, so Elsie and Bernard make their way inside HQ, which again, seems like it's been pretty massacred over the course of the week that has passed. Uh, Elsie is working in to sort of figure out what's going on. And she realizes that the cradle, which again is the system that supports all of these host backups and serves as like the, just basically a big hard drive, it seems, uh, for all the narratives that are going on. You know, people have been trying to interact, specifically QA has been trying to interact with this for the past week to essentially shut down these rogue hosts. They haven't been able to. And specifically, it's this idea of sentience, that this actual machine itself has come alive in addition to all the other machines. I believe she says it's like there's something in here that's improvising. The cradles fighting back and the words fighting back and, and improvising as well are so interesting because I feel like those are words that are used for hosts. So to have them also apply to a larger technology system i thought was again a really nice connection of language uh, we we uh, we all know that you know the <laughs> science and technology are here far more than we're actually aware of so i wasn't at all surprised that i thought i love the way that they describe the technology in human terms like that my question is why didn't charlotte hale take bernard there first mm-hmm. why isn't charlotte hale trying to get in there I, you know there's a lot about her that's super sketchy um and i thought it's interesting does as elsie one of the only people that can access it the way which she says to to Bernard, I believe if anyone can write this ship force, um, write this ship with by the force of sheer will. It's you. And I thought, well, she has an interesting um, new faith in Bernard. Does she does she think or know that he has a Ford brain ball in him or with him? Yeah, I mean, they're sort of big question marks to each other in that she, I think, still feels like she can't really trust him, considering that it was technically him 
who's stranded her out in the desert with a bucket for, you know, right. a good time or so. So I think their relationship is interesting where they're like gaining trust with each other. But at the same time, you have Bernard sort of striking out on his own path. He's the one who, when they get into the cradle, says, I need to go in here. And she's like, I don't think you should do that. But he still does it anyway. Well, let's talk about them going to the cradle. They're able to sneak around some of these QA people that we'll talk about in a little bit to get into the cradle. Again, going back to this color theory, uh, filled with red, just backlit red light and these apparent stacks of control units, just narratives upon narratives upon narratives. And it's interesting to see, again, this dichotomy between these two characters where when Elsie walks in, she's immediately creeped out. And she says, she compares it to a hive mind. But all Bernard says is, it's just data. Which again, like at the end of the day, uh, say what you want to about gray lines, but it's a host and a human. And it's so interesting to see them regard this in different ways. It is. And it's just like, it's sort of a claustrophobic, probably again, by design. Um, the way that that set is built, it reminded me of the inside of the submarine on Hunt for Red October, mm. talking about color. Um, you know, they want it to be tense, intense, small, um, even though it's vast. Uh, and I think you're right. The use of red, also red, like red alert danger. It's not warm and fuzzy in there. Do you think that that it was constantly tinted like that? Because I feel like throughout HQ, we're now getting this sort of like backlighting, whether it's emergency lighting, whether it's flashing lighting. Do you think maybe that's one of the reasons why they stay away from the cradle is that it just has horrible lighting and it just really detracts from the decor of the room? I just think it's a matter of access. Um, but my as soon as they got there, I thought, why didn't Charlotte take Bernard there first? Yeah. You know, they both of these women took Bernard to quote help. And you would think, you know, I'm assuming that Elsie's boss is Charlotte. You would, and you don't see Elsie checking in with or reporting to Charlotte. And it's just so interesting that the way these parallel uses of Bernard, that these two high, high ranking women at, at Westworld are not communicating with each other, but like also are they trying to accomplish the same thing? It is interesting because, you know, we'll get to the Teddy and Dolores stuff later, but uh, the poor, you know, QA guy that I think you thought was Stubbs last week, but it turned out Mr. Not Stubbs uh, says that, you know, Charlotte probably has access to things that even we don't know about. I wonder if the cradle is included in that because that the cradle feels like a needs to know type of thing. I feel like that's something you don't want to necessarily let everyone in on in a company newsletter, like the quarantine notices that, hey, here's where all the host backups are stored. Right, but why wouldn't Charlotte, who's allegedly in charge, know about it? Yeah, it's very true. Maybe, you know, Ford was trying to, you know, hide certain things from Teresa, for example, who was a very high, powerful person in season one. Maybe it's something that only he and his most trusted people knew about. It's a great question. I'm not entirely sure. Charlotte is still another big sort of question mark in this, especially now that she has sort of satiated her goal of getting QA there to investigate Dad Bernathy. But... Bernard starts having these flashbacks back to, you know, picking up the red brain ball and realizes that, you know, he took something here. And the only way for him to, since they're not able to really access it from the outside externally through, you know, clickety clacks on the keyboard, Bernard says it's time to go in. He's the host, so he's able to easily access it. Uh, You know, he tells her to put him inside this, I would say gnarly looking machine, but considering what we're going to talk about with Dad Bernathy, it kind of pales in comparison. (laughs) But I got to say, not the best image of, you know, this machine, like I'm assuming what cutting into poor Jeffrey Wright's scalp to pull his brain ball out. Oh, man, even the the pain on his face. He did a great job acting uh, for that one. And then all of a sudden, you know, he goes blank. Like, oh, brain ball gone. I mean, that shows you I am a skin suit now. I mean, that's the thing is that, I mean, could there be a possibility where, 
you know, maybe due to QA barging in or something, they have to, Elsie has to leave without, with Bernard's body. And as a result, maybe we get a few episodes of Bernard being stuck in the cradle with Ford Ooh. and sort of getting a look at how they're able to externally control things from an interior perspective. I do like that. Nice job. And speaking of theories and the cradle, if, if you uh, humor me here, you know, it seems to me that they are trying to get data out of the park via Dad Bernathy. Okay. Dad Bernathy has been twitching like a mofo. What if an entire backup somehow of the cradle has been uploaded to Dad Bernathy? Mm, interesting. That is why he's persona number one, and that is why it's essential to get him out of the park. But why? Why Are they trying to save the data before it gets destroyed by the hosts that have become aware? Are they trying to repurpose it and rebuild? I mean, it's just such an interesting thing, but I was thinking all of this data, and who is it going to affect the most if they had it in their head? And I was thinking about Dad Bernathy. It's a good question, because I'm wondering, though, on the timeline, because I believe Charlotte sort of like conspired with Lee to get this information in Dad Bernathy before everything went down, right? So I wonder if that's the case. Did they have a sense that it was going to happen? Was it for a completely different purpose and it just happened to coincide? Well, that's a good question. I mean, if we were to believe Emily, William's daughter, Charlotte called her for the gala. So maybe Charlotte knew that S was going to go down and I called her to go get her dad. I just feel like you know, I'm just starting to believe more that Charlotte knew what was coming. Yeah, Charlotte might be the key to all this. And we just don't know the mysterious Tessa Thompson. So, dude, Valkyrie can do no wrong, though. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, even though um, no appearance in, in Infinity War, which is very sad. Uh, let, let's she was saving people from, you know, their land. She took them down from the spaceship. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So we get into <laughs> let's talk briefly about being in the cradle. I know we talked about, you know, the big Ford of it all, but. It's so interesting to see Bernard essentially wake up in the Teddy role, kind of. You know, the, the very first shot we get in Westworld season one is, you know, Teddy looking out the window mysteriously on this train. And we only find out several minutes in that he's actually a host. And that's the narrative that he's on. I think Dolores says earlier on in the episode that, you know, this is the train that you get put on every time before you eventually get killed. And I don't know. The first thing that I thought of was what you guys have been talking about, which is this idea of, you know, maybe it's and this popular theory around the internet that, you know, this connection between Teddy and Bernard, I, I don't know, is there significance in Bernard winding up in the pseudo Teddy spot once he actually goes inside the cradle? No, for me, it was just like a reset to zero, which is the, the you know, the basic welcome to Westworld 101 scenario that they give to, um, you know, hosts that have been repurposed. That's the way mm-hmm. I read it. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we also see him get off and we see, you know, everyone sort of pursuing their own, Typical narratives. I got to say it warms my, you know, season one heart. My, my heart was warmed a few times here. First, uh, when we opened up the going back to the very first scene, I just loved hearing Evan Rachel Woods like soft Southern lilt <laughs> with Dolores yeah. before she transforms into Wyatt or whatever you want to call her halfway through where she says, no, he didn't say that. Like that was something I truly missed, even though I'm probably higher on Dolores' storyline than most this season. But to see her walk along with that rucksack of groceries and to see Teddy walk out of the Mariposa like uh, before their minds were so clouded by so many other external circumstances. But do you think... Because again, Ford and Bernard are two people that do not necessarily belong in there. Do you think there's a possibility that they could be sort of rogue factors? Again, if we hang out in the cradle for long enough, do you think they can sort of shake things up a little bit that they even disturb the life in the cradle itself? Absolutely. You know, I was thinking about, sorry, loss with Daniel Faraday and, you know, whatever happened, happened, except, you know, you can't change 
the past. I was thinking about Robert Ford at the piano and all those times we're seeing the piano played in the saloon by itself. Maybe he was there. He just wasn't seen. Mm. And it seemed like Bernard walked through this dream sequence or, you know, revisiting sequence where no one saw him. So maybe that Bernard and Arnold, I'm sorry, well, Bernard and Ford <laughs> are ghosts in the machine, but they are going to alter the outcome of whatever war is coming. Mm, so it's not like the rules literally of the movie Ghost, where they have to instead tell like uh, Oda May to do stuff for them. Let's hope not. <laughs> yeah, hopefully not. Ditto. Ditto to that. Yes. Uh, let, let's go. Let's leave the cradle for a second, but let's stay in the Mesa because I want to talk about we talked about Charlotte, but let's talk about we finally start to, I think, get to see. I'll call it wave two. If we call wave one, the initial security guards that sort of got taken down in HQ and also, you know, rained down hellfire upon at Fort Forlorn Hope. This is where we sort of get the second wave of people called in. Stubbs makes his way out from Ghost Nation capture back into the Mesa, where here Charlotte is asking, where the F have you been? This is where she talks about that it's been almost a week. Stubbs is admittedly a little upset. I think he's a little, a little high stress considering where he's come from, but he's also a little angry. because I think he's realized that she is withholding secrets from him. She talks down to him a little bit, I think. Uh, you know, I think she says, well, you're just guarding an amusement park. But she's finally, after six episodes, able to finally tell Delos, we have the package in hand, send in reinforcements. And here we get to see the subduing of poor Peter Abernathy. What did you make of this scene with this new all-black dawning group of techs? I mean... It's just, you know, again, pardon my French, one asshole after another. You know, the outside world is really not represented well in terms of who comes into the park to, quote, save and rescue. There's no rescuing going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it's interesting because I thought, wait, we still haven't gotten an exact answer of where Ashley Stubbs did go. Um, my theory is that he, you know, that the Ghost Nation took him and the Ghost Nation when they were chasing Maeve, they don't want to kill, they, you know, they're letting the hosts and humans go. They're letting Maeve and her daughter go. They, they're interested in talking to them. I feel like they have been programmed by Ford um, to save and help certain people like Elsie and Stubbs and Maeve, and they are not being heard. And even though people like Maeve can speak the Ghost Nation language, um, it, they haven't been successful yet, but I don't think Ghost Nation is going to wind up being the murdering clan that people would assume they are. And I think that Stubbs had worked with them. Mm-hmm. So did you think that that sort of has any sort of resounding effect on the way he is treating Charlotte in particular? Because it feels like his position is increasingly falling. His stature, yes. even though it's very still very large because he's a Hemsworth after all, is gradually yeah. falling over the course of his time in the Mesa, especially this episode when he realizes like, wow, I have much less power than I thought I would. If we're going talking about this whole, you know, HQ versus the host, from that perspective, do you see then Stubbs being someone to jump over to the other side? I do. I feel like we saw in this episode, his humanity is still intact and someone has awoken him in the way that Dolores and Maver awoken. And I feel like I'm rooting for Stubbs now in a way and I'm rooting for Elsie. Um, I don't trust Charlotte. And so I, I don't know. I just feel like, you know, I call him Hemsworth 3. I feel like Hemsworth 3, you know, could be an ally for one of our favorite hosts. Let's talk about Peter Abernathy for a second, because you mentioned that he might have more significance to him. But uh, as Charlotte tells, you know, Coughlin and the gang later on, he's uh, he's sticking around for a while. After being so slippery during the first half of the season, they make sure he doesn't go anywhere. They 
They bolt oh him God. down using this like you know nomadic gun. I feel like the symbolism of eyes. Everyone drink because we're talking about Lost here. I mean, <laughs> Lost is a series that opens and closes on an eye quite literally. And I remember when I was talking about this with Josh and Antonio and I believe AJ uh, when we did the anniversary of the pilot of Lost. This idea of what the eye sort of represents that it is our our point of view of the world. We see something literally through our own eyes and what we perceive can only be taken in through the amount of vision that we have. And I think that, you know, eyes have a lot of significance in the course of Westworld as well. I know, again, not to talk too much about the next time on, but the last line of that is open your eyes and has a focus specifically on Bernard's eyes. You made points before about, you know, the difference between Bernard not wearing his glasses and possibly wearing Mm -hmm. his glasses. Here we finally end Peter Abernathy sort of like in a, for lack of a better term, a Christ-like way you know, bolted down to this operating chair. But we have this close-up that we end the scene on, on his pained eyes darting around. I know he's bound and gagged, but I feel like you could essentially see what's going on in his very confused brain. What do you see moving forward for Abernathy? Do we feel like that's a wrap on him, that Delos is just going to come in and grab him and that's it? Or do you think amidst everything that's happening that he's going to slip their grasp again? I do. I think, you know, I, I wrote a note, which is I, uh, they're basically nailing one of the most important characters in the story to the cross. I mean, like you said, <laughs> I'm not not to, you know, I hope that's not sacrilegious to people, but I just, of course, see that imagery does come to mind. I also was thinking about the first promo poster for Westworld from New York Comic Con 2016 is of an eye. And within the eye is the Westworld Park. Yeah. And so you're you're definitely on to something there with the eyes. Um, I think another thing we could consider is the data has been put into dad Bernathy. There's a possibility that someone else's brain ball is in dad Bernathy. Mm. And so that also could come into play, but I do not at all think we've seen the last of Lewis Hertham. And I certainly hope not. Well, especially because when we go to, you know, to the two weeks later time frame, I don't believe that, you know, I feel like they would have announced that he was there. So it could be possible that dad Bernathy is able to get away somehow. You know, Dolores is making her way in there to retrieve him. Maybe she's successful in her mission. But I agree that I think, you know, the eyes have it. And I think that Dad Bernathy's eyes will still have more roles to play as the season progresses. I I totally agree. Well, let's talk about a new character here coming in halfway through the season. Let's talk about our friend Coughlin with his big mustache and his big <laughs> Irish brogue played by Timothy Murphy. Certainly making an impression for me. I don't know. How did you feel about Coughlin here, Joe? Well, I love this actor. Um, I, I forget if it was Sons of Anarchy or Rescue Me, but everything he's been on, he's certainly left an impression, and this is not an exception. Uh, it's a big personality, it's a big accent, it's a big mustache. Um, I, you know, again, it's another corporate a hole, uh, another, you know, person who represents force coming in to the park. I don't see him living long. I just think uh-huh. that was such a big, bold introduction. I'm like, you're toast by someone. You are just too much. Yeah, my theory is that. We can't have Coughlin because we have Strand, you know, like <laughs> the the theory is there can't be like two big D holes in the room at the same time. So something <laughs> something tells me that even though Mr. Coughlin says, you know, amateur hours over and makes fun of Stubbs's first name, I feel like he is going to be in for a big surprise. I do, too. I mean, you have, you know, arguably he's the brawn and the, the brain is uh, the other guy. And I, you know. But I also maybe the introduction with him making fun of Ashley Stubbs is that Ashley Stubbs is the one who gets 
his revenge and does get to kill him and help people in the park. That's my hope. I, I will admit it was also interesting. I don't think I've heard many people in, with Irish accents say the word bro before, but for Coughlin to say, <laughs> I know the layout, bro. It just, it was a weird roll off the tongue, but I really enjoyed it. Did you find any significance to, in addition to, you know, the, the people actually, the Dalos people parachuting in, a lot of boxes parachuting in. Do we think that is ammunition? Do we think that those are supplies to, you know, help get the data out? What, what do you think that might be? Yeah, I mean, they don't seem interested in taking the physical bodies, the skin suits of the hosts. Um, they remember it back in a couple episodes ago, uh, down in one of the labs, they were extracting DNA uh, from various parts of the hosts and or the guests. Um, my, you know, listen, I'm married to a forensic scientist and her specialty is DNA and human identification, but she hasn't caught up this season. So I haven't been able to talk to her about it, oh. but the, the collection of data of DNA and DNA samples would certainly not require the amount of boxes that are there. So I would have to guess that it's a mix of, um, tech collection and ammunition and maybe something, uh, entirely scarier than that that's going to blow up the weapon. If they get Abernathy, Abernathy's data out of the park, do they then have a goal to use what they're parachuting in to blow up the cradle. Yeah, I mean, not to go back to Lost, but it's very much like, you know, hey, here's this boat to rescue us. Oh, no, they're going to take the boy. It's it's them coming in <laughs> with, this, with this idea of rescue only for them to provide more nefarious purposes. But Coughlin and his men enter the Mesa, and Coughlin, as he told Stubbs before, really feels like he rules the roost. He knows the way around, uh, you know, he is shrugging off what the essentially his texts are telling what Elsie said before that it's impossible to get into the cradle and modify anything. Uh, he, like you said, he is more of the brawn and the stash behind it, whereas the others are more of the brains. They're finally able to get the map up, which I feel like I think it went out what when when Maeve and Lee were making their way when Lee was trying to show Maeve where Zone Thirteen was, and the map went out yeah. beforehand, and they go on this crazy journey together, but. They get the map up just in time to find a big old white dot heading right <laughs> to the perimeter of the map. Yeah, and that's the train to the Mesa, right? That is the train, yeah, because it immediately cuts to it. And we'll get to that train in a little bit, but okay. what do you think, uh, I mean, what do you think the immediate aftermath is? We see this train exploded, rocks considerably, we even feel Elsie kind of feel it in the cradle. Do you think this puts Coughlin immediately on defense mode, or do you think in a true Coughlin fashion he'll say, no, that's nothing, let's move forward and get Abernathy? Oh, no, he's going to go armed to the T. I mean, he's going to go in defense mode for sure, because he already called them killer robots. He knows that there are beings in that park that that cause a threat. So I think it's going to make him go ballistic. Well, let's go to this source of the exploding <laughs> train. Let's go to Dolores and Teddy, because we left off season five, episode five on such a delicious note where Dolores says, all right, you've been basically disobedient or at least not accustomed to my ways long enough. It's time to make some modifications with you. And from what I am assuming from the looks Evan Rachel Wood is giving James Mars and over the course of this storyline in this episode, I think she might be regretting her choice, Joe. <laughs> I immediately wrote that down too. She's regretting altering Teddy. Teddy has gone full black hat mode and is very aware that she altered him. Yeah, I mean, what can we... What sh I feel like we can't even call him Teddy. We should call him, like, Edward. Like, something very <laughs> proper, you know? <laughs> Sir Edward. Yes, I mean, exactly. It, we, we saw glimpses of this in the Wyatt narrative, I believe, in season one, yes? Yeah, where he's using the big Gatling gun when he's with the man in black, and they're, I think they were dressed up as Confederados. Yeah, that, that's immediately what I thought of, was him just no mercy in his eyes. He was giving his last mercy with all those bullets he was firing out of that gun. Right, right. 
I'll call him Weddy for Wyatt uh, Teddy. Weddy. So, <laughs> Weddy. Hashtag Weddy. W-E-D-D-Y. FYI. Perfect. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's interesting because she looks like she regrets it because now he's not into her and not paying, not in love with her and pining over her. And sure, sure, he's going to be more helpful now, but she's lost the one person who sort of adored her and thought she was the sun that shines every day. So we're going back to Sweetwater because again, putting this in context of the episode, this is the first scene that takes place after this big Bernard Dolores scene to start things off. So it puts us back in this timeline. Very poignant shot, I feel, of Teddy walking through Sweetwater. We see two things on the ground, a can and a bullet. Teddy has picked up the can, what, nine out of ten times? The other time was probably William, and he goes for the bullet. Now, I feel like that's the bullet that he's later going to give the poor tech, who's like his name is like Phil or something, to, (laughs) you know, eventually end things before the train goes barreling down the tunnel. But I feel like that's... The first hint there, Joe, that this is going to be a very, very different Teddy. And it's definitely confirmed with the way he swaggers into the Mariposa and talks to Dolores. Absolutely. And props to James Marsden, um, because it's like playing an entirely new character. He probably is really enjoying it. It is certainly very different than the Teddy we've known. Uh, I think that, okay, it's not a spoiler to say, look at the last scene of episode one. Teddy was floating in the water. So... You know, we sort of know, we quote unquote know his fate. We don't know if his brain ball is in there, if that's just one of the many teddies. But whatever she has done to him, I don't think it's going to go to her plan. Yeah, I I definitely had, I definitely agreed with that, that I feel like there's going to be something where he is going rogue or defying her orders. And at some point she decides, you know, it's time to cut weight. He's too big of a risk at this point. You know, she says in episode five that, you know, we don't we can't all make it. Some of us need to burn. Initially, I thought it was okay. Teddy's too soft, but Teddy might be too hard. We're going with like the Goldilocks thing here where she needs (laughs) she needs a a happy medium. But Teddy has this new uh, tattitude, if you will, where, you know, Dolores says, how many times do you think you've stepped off that train? A thousand, ten thousand. It's where you started every time they killed you. And Teddy just coolly replies, the man who rode that trains was built weak and born to fail. You fixed him. Now forget about it. The built weak and born to fail definitely echoes for me what the man in black was telling him during season one when he picked him up about how, uh, you know, he's like he's been he's essentially like built for doom. And so I think that Teddy actually vocalizing this for the first time is a definitive shift in character. Absolutely. I'm actually excited for the second half of the season for James Marston's like arc. Yeah, totally. And we even see it here play out in person where, you know, we get to the train platform. Angela has uh, not Stubbs and this poor tech <laughs> who's been dragged along tied up. Not Stubbs is so, you know, he has no idea where to go next. And while I think uh, Dolores tries to go for more of the good cop by getting information out of him, Teddy just straight up puts a bullet in his head and says, we'll find him. Let's go. Uh, <laughs> and so, I mean, he is definitely more more talk, less words, which I feel like we saw sometimes of Teddy in season one, to your point, but it feels, I mean, he's going to say at the end, you know, this is the last of my mercy. He is running low on mercy, even in the beginning of this episode, in my opinion. I'm fairly sure when uh, Dolores took the iPad, she over, just sort of just like skipped over the mercy part. Yeah. Or just even like sympathy or empathy. It feels like he just has no (laughs) regard for, he has loyalty to Dolores and that's pretty much it. And I feel like that might be a sort of a double-edged sword in that regard. 100%. So we chug on this train through the plains. As I said, it's it's sort of stripped down. I think we find out why it's to basically like rig it up essentially with explosives to make it a giant moving bomb. But Dolores muses about the fact that, you know, her dad, who she's going to find, one of the last things he told her was that she should run away from this place. 
And Teddy muses, I never wanted to leave, but I guess you fixed that too. I don't know. I, I, in James Marsden's line reading, I detected a little bit of biting in that tone as well. Do you think that maybe sense of humor was tuned down on Teddy's new uh, build as well? I do. I also thought that line was funny because he constantly was trying to get her to run away with him. Yes. Constantly. Exactly. And I'm like, okay, sure, Jan. Yeah, new Teddy has some catching up to do with old Teddy. So Teddy, speaking of catching up, they decide to, you know, enact the next part of their plan. Everyone hops over to the next train car, except for poor Tech Phil, who Teddy (laughs) approaches with the gun with one bullet and says, that's the last of my mercy. Better use it fast. I got to say, I know that the Tech was freaking out. You know, they locked the door on him and uh, dismantled the front of the train. But I mean... He had some time to, I don't know, break the window, jump out the window, do something, right? I guess it's a matter of, do you kill yourself? Do you wait for the explosion? Or do you jump out of a train that is out of control and careening toward uh, explosion and then break all your limbs? I'm not sure what the choice is. Well, speaking of choices, do we feel like this was a good choice on Dolores and Teddy's part to jettison this guy? I mean, compare it to... It's always interesting to sort of compare the different paths of Dolores and Maeve. And I sort of talked about this in my recap that there's an interesting theme over the course of this episode to your point about family of the various reunions that occur over Mm -hmm. this episode. Uh, You know, you have Dolores trying to find her father. You have Maeve finding her daughter. You have William reconnecting with his daughter. You have have Bernard and Ford meeting at the very end. So it's interesting to sort of see these differing paths that they take. And the fact that Maeve has strung Felix along for an entire season at this point. Dolores has a tech for, what, half a season and just says, okay, it's time to get rid of you. You know, we're, we're going to infiltrate tech ourselves. Yeah, I mean, in addition to Maeve having a sense of humanity that Dolores seems to genuinely lack, uh, she, Maeve, is thinking a few steps more ahead to me than Dolores in terms of, I need these techs because I can't get by. That's why she's keeping Sizemore around as well. But she needs Felix. She needs... Sullivan, she needs these guys to meet her end goal, whereas I feel like Dolores uses and loses them as she goes. It's interesting that you bring up the empathy, though, because I wonder if Dolores sort of has her rage at the fact that her father was taken from her clouding her judgment, too, where she's making these more short-sighted decisions, whereas Maeve is maybe more driven by grief and longing. Dolores is driven by pure anger at the audacity of taking her father away from her. That's fair. That's fair. Debbie, I guess different types of emotion, but I guess same side of the spectrum. And again, it's it's interesting talking about these hosts sort of turning more human and the emotions that come wherein. Where uh, speaking, I guess on behalf of all humankind, we don't always make the best decisions. We're emotionally driven, uh, and so we don't always make the most analytical choices. That well, it may be frustrating for viewers for people to sometimes make these decisions. I completely understand it. Right. Yes, I think that the hosts are illustrating a spectrum of emotion that uh, I think different viewers are going to glom onto and relate to and appreciate. Well, speaking of the parent-daughter narrative, let's talk about William and Emily, who we ended episode four on confirmation that Grace was Emily, which I know you, another high five moment in the Garfine Uh household. Uh, But we find them coming back together, very tumultuous relationship. I mean, first of all, a little bit of an awkward note in that William is essentially under the impression that Emily was sent by Ford and that he is stunned that Ford essentially created a host version of his daughter to talk with him. Emily makes the case that it's she's not a host. I've seen the Internet still sort of buy into that theory. Where do you stand on Emily host versus human? 
I do not at all think she's a host. I think that her knowledge of weaponry and her knowledge of the fake ghost nation arrows, you know, obviously that was my first clue that she had been in the park before. I certainly didn't expect her to be, you know, when she was a young kid to be taken to the park by William, that's a whole other effed up issue in parenting. But um, I don't at all believe it. I also just to sort of jump ahead a little bit. Do you remember the flashback? Okay. Let's go back to season one where I forget who William was talking to, but he revealed that, you know, his daughter never forgave him, blames her for her mother's death, death, and it was, I believe, it was a suicide, yes? So, yeah, so they, he says, you know, she drowned in the bath, but, you know, his daughter, his daughter told him that she actually killed herself. Right, right. So, like, we get this flashback this season of a woman, allegedly looking like a woman, dead in a bathtub with blood, yes? Mm-hmm. My theory is that that's Emily, that at the end of oh. all this... It's like, you know, when, when young William, when, when young Ford was warning William about this particular game and it's about the past and not the, not your future, really, I feel like it's, he's going to, when we see William in real, real world running upstairs, it's going to be Emily and not his wife. That's so interesting because, I mean, episode four, it felt like the way it was cut together in that beautiful sequence in the rain, that what was triggering the man in black was that parallel to Lawrence's wife you know, being the one that was sort of shoved around. And so you would, it would make us assume that, okay, that was Juliet right. in the tub. But to your point, I mean, it could be possible that this was indeed a host and that Ford is just really playing a cruel game and bring, really digging up these uh, quite literal corpses from William's past. Oh, I, I think it's his daughter now. I think that she gets, she's not a host. Oh, you think it's a flash forward? I do. I think she's not a host. And the whole situation with him continually ditching her and choosing the game over her leads her to kill herself. Interesting game talk here as well. So as we talked about, you know, the the group, which is Emily, William and Lawrence and his cousins are riding along. They find this upended wagon, which Lawrence and the gang sort of check out while Emily and William talk. William insists he basically tries to talk directly to Ford by saying, you can change the rules all you want. I'm still going to play the game my way, which, again, is him sort of defying, I guess, all the advice that these various characters are giving William. Emily, which is sort of going to be her mission this entire episode, is saying, you know, uh, you know, my game is to get the, the F out of Dodge, uh, you know, and he says, well, go to the beach and have QA find you. And she says, well, you know, that you're going to come with me, you know, even if it means getting myself killed. But Emily, to your point, proves that she's more knowledgeable than maybe William initially thought, where she's able to spot that those arrows are not Ghost Nation. And it turns out there's some marauders setting up a trap. She's able to kill them off, but say at the end of it, can we stop playing around now? Which, again, I thought it was a fun quip, but at the same time, considering all the talk about the game that came prior in the scene, I thought it was especially poignant. It is, and there are two things in this interaction between William and his daughter that gave me uh, a red flag for the, for the thought that William is a host. Okay, a couple episodes mm-hmm. ago, when he went to the bar and he opened up the secret spy thing and brought up the first aid kit to you know, stitch himself up, that was a lot of people thinking, wait a second, wait a second, is William a host? I certainly hope not. He misremembers... The elephant fact when he's talking to his daughter that she, you know, she said, I, he said, Oh, I remember when you came to the Raj as a kid, you were so afraid of the elephants. She said, I love the elephants. They scared the shit out of mom. He misremembered that fact. He didn't recognize the ghost nation arrows is, are these signs? These are host. Are they signs to mess with us? And they're coincidental because he's an old man. He's been in the park too long. These are the things that make my brain not sleep at night. Yeah, it's a good question because I think there could be definitely points to be made of, you know, this is him sort of a la James Delos glitching out that this was Jimmy Simpson putting, deciding like, hey, if it, if it didn't work for James Delos, I'm going to try it at least, putting his own 
brain ball into a host. And maybe now it's glitching out to saying, you know, I don't remember these certain facts. But on the other side of the coin, it could just mean that he's a shitty father. Totally. Uh, you know, when, when we so when we get when we get to this this fire pit later, you know, Emily takes off her boots. We get a little bit of information as to who William is outside of the park, where he hands her a bottle of alcohol and she says, you know, you don't drink out in the real world. Well, I'm glad to see you can still tell the difference. Interesting thing that Emily brought up as well, speaking of outside the park, she said that she was invited to come to Westworld by Charlotte, who yeah. said she called it what a gauntlet invite. Which was interesting. It, it, to me, I guess my best guess is that like Gauntlet Invite meant like your Walt Disney World all access pass. <laughs> you can get into like any park that you want to. And that's why she decided to go to the Raj first instead of the big gala in Westworld proper. Well, it's interesting. I must have misheard it because I wrote down Gala Invite, not Gauntlet. Oh, interesting. Yeah, the, the close caption said Gauntlet Invite, Ooh. but they've been mistaken before. So I, I could be wrong with that. But that's an interesting interpretation. <laughs> that could be another like very simple interpretation Crater. as well. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. When we find out next week that there's a gauntlet invite, that'll be either confirmed or denied. Exactly. I mean, the fact that she brought up Charlotte Hale to me, like my spidey senses went, whoa, hold on a second here. We know that William is the current, what, is he the biggest like shareholder for Westworld right now? Yep. So yeah, majority shareholder. That made me excited because I still think, going back to one of my long-standing crazy theories, is that old man Logan, not Hugh Jackman, old man Logan is not dead. He didn't OD, and he's working to get the data out of the park. He's working with Charlotte. I think that Emily is, has a role. She's working with Logan nefariously against her father. I feel like we have not seen the last of Logan. The low spiracy is a thing. So let's see <laughs> if, it will, if it will pay off. So... I mean, the, the implications of also Charlotte inviting Emily are interesting as well. To your point about maybe there's something larger at play. But, you know, it, I would think that maybe the, the invite would go out to the board members. But I don't know how Emily is involved since I think William says that she like swore off the park from her life. So Charlotte inviting her is an interesting choice. And again, Charlotte remains the big enigma in this season. And hopefully once we find out more about her role in the larger thing, larger scheme of things, that will sort of make more sense as to why she reached out to Emily directly and said, take this gala slash gauntlet invite and, you know, do with it as you please. And again, if we if we go with the notion that Charlotte knew something was coming, you know, maybe Ford gave her a heads up about what was going to happen to him at the gala and the the all the stuff that was going to happen afterward. Maybe she invited Emily at Ford's behest to throw a, you know, uh, a kink in the wheel of William's game. Uh, you know, there are so mm -hmm. many possibilities, but it's so purposeful that they brought that up, that so she invited her. So Emily talks about, you know, how she wanted to check out the Raj first because it was her favorite as a kid. To this point you made before, William says, you know, I thought you were terrified of the elephants. You said, no, that was mom. We get a little bit more information on Juliet, which resonates beautifully with when we saw her in episode two, like refuse to uh, you know give Dolores this cold look when she says, you know, Juliet was never convinced this place couldn't hurt us. So Juliet just never a fan of Westworld to begin with, even though she is a Delos. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, so then... We don't really know yet what Emily's endgame is and if she was on her mom's side or she does have good intentions with her daughter or dad, but I don't think so. Well, she definitely is on the Raja's side because she enjoyed a lot of rides in more <laughs> than one fashion. So she, she talks about, you know, her story of how she essentially got here. But this conversation gets super interesting because, again, we don't know too much about the relationship. So it's great to get her perspective now that we officially know who she is. She's not just the enigma that is Grace. Where she's talking about how William's attitude towards Westworld, at least coming into season two, was very childlike with saying a life without consequences made her obsessed with this park as a kid. 
And that's why it's sad that he still is as, a, as an adult. That he responds by saying, oh, you're just trying to climb under my wing. Uh, but then she laughs about it and reveals that, you know, she's basically here partly. And again, maybe there's some other rationale going on. But she's also here partly to essentially protect him from himself. You know, I think it was very theorized, especially coming into season two, you know, does William want more stakes to the game because he's suicidal? Because he wants to, you know, essentially up the stakes so that he ends up getting killed by these robots. And Emily gives this speech where she says, I spent so many years buying your good guy act. She was the only one who saw through that and she paid for it. But I shouldn't have said her death was your fault. You don't get to make that your final score. Instead, you're going to come home with me. So what did you make of this? Specifically, I guess, Ed Harris's reaction to her sort of claiming that the reason why you were so adamant about this game you want to play is because you know that it ends in your death. I thought it was a great emotional manipulation. And it made me think, okay, maybe Emily was working with Ford to get him out before Mm -hmm. it was too late. Or maybe, you know, there are so many different people that could be influencing her. And if it's just her, great. I would love that as well. I just also knew that it's it, she's destined for disappointment. Yeah, definitely. And I think the reaction that William gives is, is, is interesting as well, where he initially comes at her angry. You know, he, she said, he says that she's threatening him, but then she's able to sort of talk him down a bit. And I do wonder, again, if she ends up being a host and she is part of this game, she could serve as sort of a nice distraction point. Maybe that's sort of what he was realizing as well, was he thought like, oh, wait, you know, he does agree with her. She's able to convince him slightly to, you know, let's go to the beach the next day. It'll be a good start to sort of rebuilding our relationship. And they start drinking and chuckling. And then at sunup, he's gone. Uh, he leaves yeah. her behind with one bean-making cousin. Uh, and so <laughs> I, I do wonder if maybe, do you think he was lying to her then? Do you think he got second thoughts and realized, oh, no, maybe she's distracting me from the end goal of the game and everyone's against me? I think that he has a trust no one policy with good reason. He's been playing the game also for so long that he has blinders on it. I mean, he looked, maybe it was an acting choice, but Ed Ed Harris looked genuinely touched by a lot of what she was saying. But I think that he has, he questions her motives. He questions her her if she's real or not. And so it's not at all a surprise that he didn't stick around. This is not a man who's going to quit after 30 years. And I think that's especially poignant though, given that this is his literal own flesh and blood and he's still leaving her behind for his obsession to get through this game. Yep. Oh. Absolutely. Poor William, poor William. And we'll, we'll see if Emily catches up. And William maybe gets a little bit of karma proportion to him by the Westworld gods or possibly Ford as, you know, him and Lawrence and the cousins are riding through the forest. They see a tomahawk sticking out of a tree and they are ambushed. I was trying to get a look at it, Joe. Can we? Do we have confirmation that that was Ghost Nation that was chasing after them? I believe so. But again, my, if my theory is correct, the Ghost Nation has been chasing after capturing people. And I feel like there's information that they're trying to relate to them and they're not trying to kill them. So my question would be, are they after Emily or are they after William? It's a good question, because, I mean, they found Emily beforehand and then they met, you right. know, the the one that they speak to, I think, with the, the original Lakota, who I believe is also the one that sort of hunts down Maeve at the end here. Uh, and it seemed like they let her go afterwards. So I would question why they want to necessarily see her again. But also, you know, William might be wishing right now that he had someone who spoke Lakota, because otherwise there's going to be a lot of stuff lost in translation if it's just him and Lawrence and all these bumbling cousins. Exactly. Uh, I was thinking that, you know, sorry to go back to this, if William is a host situation, but 
Maybe he was young, you know, Jimmy Simpson, young man in black, was trying to perfect the Delos host himself so he could become one. And now that's what we're seeing. He glitches when he misremembers facts, like his daughter and the elephants, how his wife died. Perhaps the game ends for William when he himself figures out he's a host. Mm, Interesting. And then, you know, I know you talked about, you know, the Ed Harris facing down with Jimmy Simpson. Could that be a similar situation? Could there be, much like a room of Bernard's, a room yes. of Williams, and that's how he realizes that he's a host? I am hoping so. I feel like one of my dream scenes would be cold storage cut to a couple different body suits of Ed Harris. Yeah, I think I think it could totally happen, and maybe that's another reason why he sort of walks in with reckless abandon is because there's, and the park lets him because, you know, there's uh, three more where that came from. Right. At first, I was like, oh, he's untouchable because he's the main stockholder. That's, of course, was my prevailing thought throughout it. And then all of a sudden, for this episode, I went, oh, no, no. I mean, I don't want, for some reason, I don't really want him to be a host, but I also do um, because I feel like, is that too obvious? No. But why are they trying to, when they showed that scene of him getting that kid and fixing himself up, that was to throw us off entirely. Yeah, I, I totally agree that I think it's just because William is such an interesting perspective as a human someone who really approaches this from a borderline sociopathic perspective of, hey, we're all just in a game here, quite literally. I thought it was a very interesting point of view that to have it be a host might feel a little bit of a cop-out, in my opinion. I hope that he's not a host, just because I want to see more of these bigger ideas of humans versus hosts. And right now, he's our biggest human character. So I think to have another one go over to the host side would be a little tough. But now we sort of have the lines blurred again with this human-host hybrid. You know, if if he has a human's brain ball in him, does that make him human or does that make him a host? Right. I mean, these are the sort of uh, existential questions that they want people like us to be asking. Well, let's finish things off here with going back to Shogun World, where we spent a good portion of the previous episode. And we picked things off, you know, with some nice, again, I wouldn't say music here, but the musicality Mm -hmm. of this rhythmic deep breathing and this poem, breathing in, breathing out, moving forward, moving back, living, dying, coming, going, like two arrows meeting in flight in the midst of nothingness. There is a road that leads to my true home. I believe that's like an actual uh, Japanese poem about death. And obviously, there's a lot of death going on. But I feel like the idea, especially the last line, there's a road that leads to my true home. There's going to be a lot of talk about home in this episode between Musashi and Akane saying we have to stay here, between May finding her own true home. And, you know, this is also said in voiceover by Akane as the camera pans over this carnage across the field to a bloody mave just surveying uh, you know, what happened over the previous night. What What did you think about the way this Shogun world opened, considering how it ended in the previous episode? I just wrote down mind control Maeve. I mean, she's even sort of, she is shocked by her ability uh, and the carnage that has resulted. It also saved their lives. I think that, you know, she has that new voice and she's learning and how to use it and appreciate it, but there are consequences. Um, I, I thought it was beautiful. The, the breathing, the poem, the use of music, um, sort of slow motion blood. I just, I thought it was amazing. Did you feel saddened that we did not see any battle continue from the end of last episode? Cause we have Maeve with this Katana saying, I'm going to, I'm going to use my new voice cut to the next morning and they conquered. It felt a little bit like a, Bit of a spoiler for season one of Game of Thrones when, you know, Tyrion runs into this big battle. He gets knocked out with a hammer. He wakes up and they said, oh, we won the battle. You know, <laughs> I mean, they, they did a lot of brilliant action stuff over the course of the series, especially last episode. And we're going to get the big duel coming up. But 
I, I, pangs of me did miss the idea of Maeve mind controlling this giant army to essentially attack themselves. I thought it was enough last week with the gore and the beheading of the main douchebag. So I, I was satisfied. And also the fact that we then got the epic battle with Musashi. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I don't think we uh, you can't go further up from using a hairpin to cut off somebody's head halfway. But speaking of, you know, carnage and death, we do have Akane lying over Sakura, uh, her body. I mean, we get her, you know, cutting out her heart. I feel like, again, speaking toward this idea of this like mother daughter relationship, Maeve hands her part of her sleeve to wrap up this heart. In, and it's going to be used later on to obviously lay her in this final resting place. But the way Akane cradles this heart you know to her face almost childlike in my opinion like a swaddled baby i thought was a very interesting image it was and i wrote down there's such reverence in these scenes that you forget their hosts and you wonder how many times versions of the scenario has played out it's so beautiful it's so touching you have to wonder how many times akane has done a version of this yeah absolutely considering that you know again the the clementine versions depending on what guests come in for they might not be long for this world you know they are essentially for use by whatever guests come in and do whatever they want with them if something goes wrong they could very easily die and then this whole thing happens again uh you know it's it's particularly sad but they they take her heart this entire maves gang goes back to the village where you know from what we saw last time for those of you that don't remember when the ninjas sort of infiltrated the place Maeve came up with this plan for musashi and hector and armistice and shogun armistice to distract them they do uh, but as a result it gets them captured by captain tanaka uh, who sort of is the new occupant of Musashi's position as captain of the Shogun's girl. It seems like, you know, even though the Shogun is gone, there are still some radical people in effect. Uh, Tanaka tries to make a deal here, and it seems like Maeve is going to be the one to try to force her upper hand. You know, she tries to put her mind control in, but Musashi stomps himself, which again speaks to this larger idea, and they're going to talk about it later on. I guess it begs the question, do we think that Maeve has taught these hosts anything between Akane and Musashi, what they need to do? Or do you think Musashi, it was just in his code almost to always take the honorable honorable position and challenge him to I this I feel like duel? it was in his code and may have probably got a sense that she didn't need to enhance him. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, she does say, you know, when Akane tells him, use your magic, I do love when Tanaka calls the two of them the assassin and her <laughs> witch. I just love that they're calling Maeve a witch. But Akane, uh, Maeve says, we each deserve to choose our fate even if that fate is death. We talked about it a little bit, but any thoughts about the Musashi Tanaka duel to end all duels? I thought it was beautiful and great cinematography. And obviously Hiro Sonata is an amazing accomplished um, actor and, and choreography fighter. I think I just thought this is the third beheading we've seen. We came across the beheaded guard in the first uh, the first time they were heading into Shogun World Sizemore, found that head in the snow. And then we saw... Uh, Akane behead the uh, D-bag last week's episode, and then you saw this, and I thought, there's a lot to do in this show with taking out brain balls and taking out heads. And I just thought it was a really interesting dynamic. Yeah, and I wonder if there's, like, historical context in that as well, you know, whether or not that was just a, a typical method of execution, almost like the, the Japanese guillotine. But, you know, it seems like there's... The fighting is pretty even until Musashi looks like he's down at one point in this sustained position, but it allows him access to sort of grab 
Tanaka's other sword at his belt. And now he's essentially dual wielding to the point that he's able to literally disarm Tanaka. <laughs> and Tanaka is forced onto his knees. And I thought it was an interesting parallel here where, you know, Musashi throws his sword at his feet and essentially allows Tanaka to give like the final mercy a la Teddy with the one bullet to have him commit, commit seppuku before, as you mentioned, Musashi cuts his head off. And I do agree, you know, we're going to talk about this being a wrap on Shogun World possibly in a little bit, but we had to get at least one big Musashi fight out of it before we left here. Uh, it's Hiro Sonata. You absolutely did. Uh, so I, I enjoyed it. I also was thinking for, I know that the West World host skin suits are very advanced, but when they cut off arms and cut off heads, there's no wires. It's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's in- incredible to see the way the technology, you know, progresses. I feel like even when we saw, you know, Dolores initially being built, that build is so different from, you know, the milky s- substance underneath the hosts that are now typically constructed. Yes. So it's, it's such an interesting sort of dichotomy in the advanced technology, and even how much further we're going to go. Yes. You know, what other substances may exist there. Before they head off to Snow Lake, Akane urges, hurry, you must find your child before this darkness eats us alive. And I feel like darkness is another big theme that pervades Westworld. Again, not to talk too much about the next time on, but that's all about, the narrative is all about darkness there, where they say, you know, when you're in the dark, your eyes eventually adjust and allow you to see. And I feel like this idea where the hosts have been in the dark, proverbially speaking, for so long, that it can be a hindrance, but it can also be an advantage over your enemies who might not necessarily be used to functioning in the dark. Right. And I know that Maeve seems like the most awake host out there, but what if, you know, the hint about the darkness is literally they either blow up the cradle or the technology is affected to the point where Maeve doesn't remember what she's looking for. Mm, I, it's a really interesting idea. So we get to Snow Lake, uh, which, again, as we mentioned before, that's what they talked about last time. That's Sakura's home, according to her narrative. And Lee also knows that, hey, that's a nice uh, access to the tunnels where we can get the heck out of Dodge. They finally go back here through this tall bamboo. It leads to this beautiful, picturesque lake. Uh, they sort of divide and conquer. Felix, Sylvester, and Lutz, the staff members, they push these b- poorly wrapped bodies out of the way <laughs> to find a tunnel. And oh man, we we took we we only went like one episode without uh, subjecting these poor staff members to <laughs> humiliation. Now we got poor Felix sliding down a garbage chute and landing on a pile of dead bodies. As you do. As you do. And it was nice Foley work as well, because that's sort of like a weird sort of squish thud <laughs> that he uh, that he landed on there. So they they put Akane, t- uh, they put uh, Sakura to rest. They put her heart in this bowl and they're able to, to strike this flame. The fire imagery is also really interesting as well between I feel like Delos going up so many times in flames during his test between, uh, you know, William constantly saying he's going to burn the place to the ground. I feel like cleansing fire. Yes is an interesting image to me in Westworld. It's also interesting that they have a fake heart that is so real and that they use that part of a scenario. I mean, this is... <laughs> I, I, I don't know if Sizemore wrote all this, but he needs some credit because this is some dark S right here. Yeah, I mean, he definitely diverged from, I think, his... Uh, I don't think we saw this in Westworld unless no. it's more of like a ghost nation thing. So good on him for at least doing his research in that regard. So the, Maeve says, all right, time to go. This is when Musashi reveals that they are going to stay. At least I think him and Akane are going to stay. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong here, did we see Shogun Armistice go yes. with them into Westworld? Yes, because in later scene when she goes to find her daughter, she's dressed like them. Interesting. We know nothing about this character besides the fact that she is literally the girl with the dragon tattoo. <laughs> but to have her leave her counter, her Hector counterpart 
a Musashi and go into Westworld. I feel like it's a very understated character choice. I feel like that we will learn more about her. She will become useful. Hopefully. I mean, I love that one scene where her and Armistice were sort of doing the oh mirror God. trick. Ho- hopefully we get more Amazing. of that. Amazing. Absolutely. So, you know, Maeve tries to make the pitch to them saying, you'll make a new home somewhere safe. But Musashi replies, no man is safe who refuses to defend his own land. So again, going back to this idea of home from that, you know, that that poem that uh, Akane said, there's a road that leads to my true home. It, it seems like much like Maeve is seeking her own sort of home based location. Musashi believes that despite the fragility and the tumultuousness that's coming across here, he knows he is bound to stay here and defend his own land. It's the honor that, again, is built into his own code. Right. And I feel like Maeve has such a good squad now that she was able to sort of be like, all right, I get it. <laughs> and so Akane also sort of uh, does a nice job of spinning back Maeve's words to her by saying, my daughter's spirit is here, my faith belongs here, and the choice belongs to me because of you. Let, let's talk about this for a second. How do you feel about this possibly being a wrap on Shogun World after two episodes? Are you satisfied or do you want to see more of it? I would like more of it. Um, the general internet feeling does not seem to agree with us, but I think it's fantastic and different and uh, it has some depth to it that I feel like we could have gotten more into. I, I feel like we will revisit part of it um, more likely than it will something like the Raj. Uh, but I don't really know. I mean, we're only halfway through. I can't imagine they're done with Shogun World. I, especially since it got so built up, you know, it, it, we have Maeve clutching that katana sword so many times in that trailer. But I also wonder, you know, because it was essentially billed as, hey, this is basically a copy and paste of Westworld with Japanese elements into it. How much more story can we plumb out of that well? Right, right. That's you know? fair. Yeah. Because, because there's so much, you know, narrative spillover. What other new stuff can we do, especially since we really lampshaded that? There's not much more to do within Shogun World itself. Now, if we brought over Musashi and Akane into Westworld proper, that could certainly be interesting. I would love to see the Shogun World characters, but I wonder if, despite the absolute beautiful cinematography that occurred over the past two episodes, I do wonder if, narratively speaking, it's worth it to do some more stuff in Shogun World. Yeah, yeah, I think we both have uh, wishes and valid points. I, I don't really know what I love that I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, let we go back to Westworld here. Everyone is back in their Western gear. I'm sure Lee loved to get back in his little boy suspenders with his nice white shirt. I'm sure he loved that after the very nice breezy kimono he got. Well, absolutely. And I want to just reverse here because someone online, I believe, tweeted us like, how on earth did they get back to Westworld from uh, Shogun World, you know, they went down into the tunnels and Sizemore knows the tunnels. He, We don't know how much time has passed, but he was able to, everyone changed clothing and they made yep. their way back to the part of Westworld and the prairie where Maeve's story was with her daughter. So the ha- time had passed. We just didn't see them, thank goodness. We don't have to, we don't have, we, this is a show that does not have time to show us like lost those walks on the beach with exposition. <laughs> Yeah, no, there's a lot. I mean, even like when you have Dolores and Teddy being like, we rode for 10 miles. Like, we don't need to see necessarily all that. We just sort of exposition our way through. And plus, not only do you have, you know, not only do you have Lee there, but you also have like Lutz and Sylvester who might not necessarily know the the journey, but they at least probably know HQ pretty well. Right. You know, avoid the major areas. I believe Sylvester is the one to, you know, pull open this, ironically enough, a gravestone to reveal that they are finally in Maeve's home zone. Uh, this is where we get a nice, like, poignant moment from between Maeve and Lee. Uh, probably the last poignant moment, considering what Lee does next. Yeah. But, you know, he he does a nice clip about like not bad navigating for a man. Uh, you know, not bad navigating for a man under serious duress. And then she eventually says something back at him, but she thanks him. So 
their relationship has grown so interestingly. But again, we'll talk about this. Lee might have just reverted all of that Ugh. by, you know, leaving her in the dust. Yeah, using the walkie-talkie to call for help for the human beings. Yeah, for the ones that could actually get their, their heads shot up. But Maeve is completely besides herself that she is finally in this place. She's having these sense memories of running her hands through the wheat and the, the rolling hills. But she tells them that she has to just, she tells her growing entourage <laughs> that she has to do this alone. She says, I know this place. It was my home. Again, going back to this idea of this home base, uh, you know, she says, wait for me. I'll bring my daughter back. And they walk up. The music was beautiful here. Just this really delicate string section. Uh, so simple and sort of conveying, you know, the string instruments that sort of came over from Shogun World, but into this really simple scene where she finds this house that she used to occupy and there she is after half a season of searching. Maeve finally finds her daughter, but in true Westworld fashion, not the reunion that she wanted. No, fake Maeve. I mean, that was a really nice twist. Uh, I think that, you know, in, in some level, obviously, Maeve has an awareness that there are multiple copies of hosts. But to see a different version of her, it's not even the same skin suit. Um, I think that really threw her on the reason that she didn't use her powers to protect fake Maeve and that she ran with her daughter is that she was emotionally distracted. Um, and that's sort of how I thought about it. Completely agree. I know that some people were saying, you know, why did she why was she surprised that, you know, there was another version of her? Because to your point, she's seen Clementine, for instance, get overwritten and, you know, get replaced, essentially. But for me, it's sort of one of those things like, oh, it happened to this person, but I never thought it could happen to me. Right. You know, I think she just had this image so ingrained in her head of I'm going to reunite with my daughter and it'll be just like old times. I just don't think she even expected the possibility of you know, oh, there's this narrative is still going. Here's a woman who looks like me. And I love the dichotomy as well between fake Maeve's beautiful white dress and Maeve's black jacket. And yeah. seeing how far she's come from that white narrative into this dark black renegade person set on a mission. But it's a very striking moment. And it just the floor falls out from under you. Now, do we know Maeve's daughter's name? Because she says that like the daughter doll is named Anna. Do we just assume that she's creative with names, or do you think she actually was, you know, naming her daughter her dolls after her and my her and Maeve? I couldn't remember if she was named in the first season, so I believe that her name must be Anna. We'll just go with that. Yeah, we'll say Anna for now. And if it turns out that's just the name of the doll, uh, we shall find yeah. out soon. But before they can sort of hash out the situation, here comes Ghost Nation writing in, just like the narrative always said. And Maeve, to your point, like before she can really do anything, I think just her fight or flight kicks in. And I think, honestly, it's that thing where you're, you're running and you don't even realize your legs are moving, where she just right. ran with her to get away. They trip in a clearing and this Ghost Nation leader walks in and tells her in Lakota, Come with us. We are meant for the same path. Maeve replies, your path is made for hell. Hmm. What is, what is this, the significance of that exchange between Maeve and the leader of Ghost Nation, presumably? Well, mind control Maeve seems to be able to see a little bit of the future. Um, maybe she knows what their path is. Um, you know, if my theory that they are being programmed by Ford or working with Elsie and Stubbs, you know, maybe she thinks that it's nefarious. Maybe she has an inkling that they're not working on behalf of the hosts, um, the fellow hosts. So I'm not really sure, but I think it's so fascinating that the Ghost Nation is not trying to kill them. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, with her saying your path is made for hell, you know, I think she says in season one, you know, 
these people are not gods. You know, they're essentially demons. I wonder if that's what she's meaning to your point of, hey, these people will lead me back to what I would consider the devil, which is, you know, Robert Ford and those that created us and put us on these unfortunate paths. Right. I remember what Robert Ford's old comment about, um, you know, basically you can't, I forget what the comment is, something like you have to work with God and the, and the devil simultaneously. There was some quote that I'm totally messing up in season one that made me think of hell with the devil. Yeah. And, and there was also Delos in episode four said, you know, uh, you know, that you look up from hell and essentially it's just like a mirror back down that there's someone up there who's just as demonic in a manner of speaking. So we'll see what her sort of spurning, you know, ghost nation entails. Are we expecting just like now, you know, a runaway plot between Maeve and her daughter with Maeve trying her best to take control of this narrative and bring her daughter back into her life? Well, she's got a squad behind her, which is nice. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, now that she has her daughter, you know, I think it's, again, the reverence with which this is treated, you forget that these people are hosts and they're pro- it's a program. And it's just so interesting that she's going after her daughter as if she is real. Um, and, you know, what happens when Maeve goes into Cold Storage and sees different versions of her daughter? Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, this gets brought up in, in throughout the second season of Sizemore tells her, you know, she's not real. This, yeah. is, this is just something that we created. And I remember in the very first episode in that aforementioned Dolores, uh, you know, Arnold slash Bernard conversation. Uh, I think Dolores asks Arnold what's real. And Arnold says that which cannot be replaced. Mm. And that I feel like has been anchoring Maeve the entire time is like, no matter what is fake around her, her relationship to her daughter is real because in her heart, that relationship cannot be replaced. But now she finds out that it literally can, that there's (laughs) another host exactly like her who is replacing her in that part. And so maybe it's sort of making her freak out and realize that maybe it's not real to begin with. Maybe Lee was right the entire time. So that should lead to some really interesting internal conflict. Yes, absolutely. I just love it. I also love the dichotomy between how William treats his daughter and how Maeve treats her daughter, given that allegedly William and Emily are human and, you know, Maeve and Anna are not. And I think just just to compare those two is fascinating. Yeah, exactly. It's the humans are acting more like hosts and the hosts are acting more like humans. And that's what really that's where I feel like the beauty in Westworld lies is that it really blends this idea of, you know, these are artificial people, but with real emotions, almost, you know, even more human emotion than some of the humans. And what we mentioned before to finish off this scene in Maveland is that, uh, you know, the, the staff members are watching things from afar. Hector and Armistice and uh, Shogun Armistice go in to help battle off Ghost Nation and probably save fake Maeve. But while Lutz wants to run in, Lee and Sylvester presumably like to stay behind. Lee finally pulls out that pee break phone uh, from last episode and he decides he's going to call for help. Lutz decides to abandon him. Uh, so do we think... You know, we're assuming that Lee is probably going to make his way back into HQ somehow. But do you feel like there are going to be ramifications of his action here to abandon Maeve? A hundred percent. It's not going to go well for him. Yeah, I would agree. And I understand where Lee's coming from, where he feels like, you know, if he made a contract with her of, hey, find me, let me find my daughter and you'll live. He essentially satiated his part of the contract. But at the same time, I feel like Maeve is such an emotional person that they foster such a close connection that he genuinely hurt her. Maybe if he was going with Dolores, Dolores would be totally fine saying goodbye to him. But she, I think, will not be as fine with being spurned because of that. And she's so far advanced in her awakening and she is now knows how to access the access points, the tunnels. Um, I feel like Maeve will be just fine without him. 
Yes, and now she can also mind control hosts too, you know. And she might have access to that aforementioned mesh network too. So if there's a host in cold storage that are near Lee, she could command them in a manner of speaking to to go after him. So Lee, uh, good luck. That's all I have to say. <laughs> good luck, Mr. Sizemore. Joe, do you have any other prevailing theories that came out over the course of this episode? No, I think I try to integrate them into every character as we went through. So thank you for, well, thank you, Mike, but also thank you to fans for putting up with, you know, great up salt, tongue in cheek. We have a lot of fun with these and my theories are really out there and very, very rarely correct. But that is the fun for us in this particular podcast is we just like to throw things out there to see if anything sticks theory wise. And my mind is so I feel like it is uh, a gift. This show is a gift for those of us who podcast about the show and those of us who um, go into Reddit and write blogs and tweet about it. I feel like, um, you know, I I just want to say that to end this, I appreciate the 100% constructive criticism and positive feedback that we are receiving about this podcast because I feel like now halfway through the season, a lot of people didn't listen to us necessarily last season. People get the idea. They understand what we are doing here, which is um, it's not the most serious of podcasts. Let's leave that to the people mm-hmm. you know who do other podcasts and good for them. Um, so I just want to say thank you to the fans, but also thank you to you, Mike, for putting up with me for this uh, hour and a half chat about Westworld. The pleasure was absolutely all mine, and unlike the uh, the pleasure palaces that Emily indulged in <laughs> back on the Raj, but this was so much fun. I mean, this was such a chalk-filled episode as well. I know Evan Rachel Wood, before this episode aired, sort of tweeted like, hey, Westworld, the second half of Westworld Season 2, uh, multiply you know what you've been feeling the past couple episodes times 10,000%, which... <laughs> I'm already getting a, a feeling of that considering how, I mean, we had to, again, streamline these our discussion into these different storylines. If you watch the episode in order, all of these things that we were talking about over the past hour and a half were completely jumbled around uh, from both a timeline perspective and a character perspective. So now that we're finally starting to bring people together after keeping them separate for so long, I am so excited to see how this accelerates, how things combine, how we find out certain things. We now know that Ford is in the park in a manner of speaking still and in physical form and we'll see how that affects things how his relationship with bernard will affect things which version of bernard we'll see there are so many interesting ideas that have really come about in the past couple of episodes that even though we have left shogun world behind we still have an infinite world of possibilities in front of us absolutely and i just think that the the person who i think is potentially underrated and potentially has a key to the door is elsie and i'm keeping my eye on her Yes, Elsie and Charlotte might have to, like, uh, submarine-style use their keys together to unlock this giant door to the secrets of Westworld. We'll see next week. We talked a little bit about the next time on, but, again, it seems like we might be seeing, you know, a Bernard-esque cold storage. I saw Teddy in, like, security gear get up as Dolores infiltrated. We saw, you know, Coughlin and his guys firing at them, so it seems like we might get... Dolores in her next battle here. So this show's going to keep chugging along and I'm so excited to get to episode seven. And I'm so excited to hear you and Josh get to break it down next week. I'm so grateful to the Hollywood reporter and Josh for giving me this opportunity to not only hop on and talk with you, Joe about this, but to also get to uh, write about it a bit for THR as well. As I mentioned before, I got to write a recap of this episode. If you haven't checked it out, I wrote a little bit of a, uh, you know, a piece about the sneak peek for the next episode, primarily focusing around this revelation of multiple Bernards and how now the idea of whose eyes are we necessarily seeing all this through really becomes pertinent uh, later on in which aspect ratio, I suppose, as well. I'll also be following up um, possibly with a with a photo breakdown as well. You can also check out all the other great stuff that's going on uh, with Breastworld as well. I know Josh was able to post a couple of 
articles with himself, uh, you know, an interview with Tandy Newton, a breakdown of how we led up to this Ford reveal. Uh, I know that in addition, we have Kevin P. Sullivan writing about a couple of theories as well. So make sure you check it all out. THR.com slash Westworld. Make sure you don't miss an episode of this podcast. Welcome to Westworld as well. Go to postshowrecaps.com slash Westworld and make sure you always subscribe and leave us a nice rating and review if you'd like to as well. Josh and Joe really kick a lot of butt here. And I'm so (laughs) grateful that I got to come aboard even for just one brief train trip before I get sent off into the uh, (laughs) infinite abyss. I will break the windows. I'll jump out best I can. Uh, You can follow both of us on Twitter. Joe is at Joe Opinionated. I am at a Mike Bloom type. Feel free to let us know. Like Joe said, you know, we are so receptive of all the constructive criticism and the positive feedback. We want to hear what you guys have to say. Most of the fun of Westworld is honestly just talking about it and just fleshing out all these crazy ideas and scenarios that may come out. And uh, y'all are a smart group out there. So please reach out and give us your thoughts about not only what we think about the episode, but your thoughts as well. Absolutely. That's a great summary. We, you know, Mike, I'm sure we will meet again and we will podcast again. And whether it's about Westworld or Lost, I think that even if the three of us could have a fun, maybe wrap up of the season together. I would absolutely love that. That would be certainly a grand all time. So we'll see. I'll bring the beans to the campfire. We'll, <laughs> we'll have we'll have a great time. Well, that's going to do it for this week on the Welcome to Westworld podcast. Again, thank you so much for listening, Joe. Fantastic work as always. You and Josh will be next week to cover next week's episode seven of Westworld season two. But for now, take care, everyone. Bye bye. Grab your hat on the way out the door. 